Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The Florida Seminole Wars were the longest, most costly, and bloodiest conflict the United States military ever fought against Native American people during the era of Indian removal. What history calls three wars are considered among the Seminole to have been one long, relentless conflict lasting decades. The book Seminole and Creek War Battles and Events provides the most comprehensive list of such engagements. It offers a regional perspective lacking in chronicles of either just the Seminole Wars or of just the First and Second Creek Wars. After 25 years of research, Chris Kimball pulled together every single reference to a war, campaign, battle, engagement, skirmish, or ambush that had been long overlooked in the history books. The Seminole Wars, of course, had a few well-documented big battles, but it also had scores of small skirmishes that comprise the bulk of the fighting between soldiers and Seminole. Finding this comprehensive list in one place is a godsend for anyone who seeks to understand the fighting of this period and is a must-have for anyone interested in Florida or American military history. Joining us today to explain how he did it and why is Chris Kimball. Chris is a researcher and living historian of the Seminole Wars. He is also a board member of the Seminole Wars Foundation. He podcasted with us previously to discuss his reference collection to Seminole War articles found in the Army-Navy Chronicle and on his compilation of letters, reports, and accounts of the war's bloodiest battles and events in the region of Alachua County, Florida. Chris, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure. Why did you compile this book? I was uh, doing the living history reenactments, and I just want to get as much information as I can so when I talk to people, I kind of know what I'm saying. I was looking for a list of battles and events, and there really was not one at the time. Uh, Some books did pretty good on covering some of the major battles, but just didn't go far enough as far as I was concerned, is that I found, you know, about some battles that weren't listed or some would be in one source and one in another and so there is no one thing that covered overall what everything happened in the war as good as john sprague's book written in 1848 the florida war as good as it covered the war there's gaps in that publication as well you know it mostly covers what happened in florida after about 1838 yours is a detailed timeline sometimes day-to-day of war events Why did you add additional color to the timeline instead of just a flat-out chronicle of, on this day, X happened? I wanted to uh, try to get an overall picture because, of course, the Second Seminole War didn't have so much of a beginning date and ending date as that there's events that led up to everything happening. So I included some of the Spanish and the British interaction with the natives, and up until, I think I go as far as uh, 1957 or 
1862 when the modern Seminole tribe and modern Miccosukee tribe are created. So just kind of going full circle in the historical event. Who were the Seminole and Miccosukee people? And from whom did they descend? That's not an easy question, as some people think. And the more we know, the more confusing it gets. It depends on who you ask. Uh, even among the Seminoles themselves might give di- different geological locations, say, you know, depending on where their family came from. Uh, a lot of people assume that they came from the upper and lower creeks in Georgia and Alabama. And, in fact, uh, the Seminoles themselves, they have stories that, predate those and talk about events in Florida. Recently, I heard one of my Seminole friends tell about what they saw when the Spanish first arrived in Florida. And even going back further than that, a Seminole lady I used to visit with who's now passed away, she told about Florida when there was uh, mastodons still roaming the earth. Well, she must have been quite an elderly lady. Uh, She was a keeper of the stories, and she told some amazing and wonderful things. You point out something very important is you don't start just with uh, Seminole Wars or the Creek Wars. You start this book with the arrival of the Spanish. Right, because that's when recorded history starts in Florida, and you start the European uh, interaction with the native people, and you kind of see the colonialism spreading across Florida and the impact it has on the native people and the native reaction, which things don't always go very well for the Spanish. One of the things that jumps out is that you see how the natives in Florida got along or didn't get along with the Spanish and how the Spanish operated with them. Later, you include the British when they took over Florida, and before that, when they just had trading interests, and you see their interactions with the native peoples. Then you get to see what it's like once the United States takes over Florida as a territory and then a state. What did you want readers to take away by presenting these different perspectives of how Europeans interact with the native tribes in Florida? The, the native people always had a really good interaction with the European powers, but it was more passive at, at times of the British or the late Spanish period, is that they're kind of left alone after that. The early Spanish period with the mission, you had sickness and slave runs, uh, but the native people adapt to that, and as every troubling thing that happens to their history, it may be a bit rocky, but they still survive overall. That. At one point, it sounds like all the natives in Florida had died out, and then other natives from what's today Georgia, South Carolina, uh, territory in Alabama, the, the, with a Creek identity, moved south. Explain how that factors in. Was that a, is that a fair assumption, or were there some that just weren't being counted who were still native to Florida that were still living in the state? I think there was always people living in the state, uh, and we know that because the stories they carry on and continue on. Uh, People certainly moved around a lot, but the United States kind of used that as a justification to move the native people out and do the Indian removal and send them away and then take the land that's left. And that was more of a justification for that time period. If we listen to the native people themselves, they're telling a different story. And for a long time, we only just heard one side. To try to get one's handle on these different identities is difficult today, and it was difficult back in the day. What was Indian agent Wiley Thompson's solution to the Indian identity issue? 
uh, Wiley Thompson wrote in his letters in 1833 when he became Indian agent, he says all the Indians in Florida are Seminoles because that means runaway, and they've all run away from somewhere else. And so that creates a problem, really, from that time forth, is that all the natives are called Seminole, even though they're Creek, Seminole, Miccosukee, Uchi, uh, Ufala, Apalachicola, all, all these different various bands and groups. So suddenly they're just lumped under one group or one ethnicity, ethnicity even though they were never that way. Even when the Spanish arrived, the native people started intermarrying, and you already had mixing of different cultures and people. We think of Osceola as the quintessential Seminole. Folks who go to Florida State football games see the war chief Osceola riding out to rally the team. So which was he, Seminole or Miccosukee? Originally, he was Creek. He was from Tallahassee Creek, and there's a, a Creek gentleman who wrote his memoirs in a series of letters. His name was Thomas Woodward, and he even knew the family and could tell you the spot where Osceola was born and grew up at Tallahassee, Alabama. And it, Osceola's family, you know, they were in a band or a village family that uh, was against Andrew Jackson, so when Jackson defeated the Creeks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, they had fled down into Florida, and so they joined with the Seminoles. Osceola himself, you know, would say that he's uh, just pure Seminole, and, you know, just... <laughs> the, the title doesn't mean much, I guess. Uh, the Seminole itself was not so much a, a tribal or affiliation, but during the war it was an identity as well. Then the Americans, they further complicate things, saying that the Seminoles are the peaceful ones that want to move west, and then the Miccosukee are the hostile ones that want to resist removal. So then just further uh, confusing the situation. And Osceola was not all Indian. He was from mixed parentage, but there's always been a debate on that. Pat uh, Wickman tells in her book on some DA studies, DNA studies done on the hair, but it's never been too clear. Uh, the Seminoles themselves will deny that Osceola, uh, his mother had Osceola before his uh, biological father died, who was native, and then she married him. Scotsman, so Osceola was called William Powell. But it's never been too clear because people certainly have a, a reason to believe what they want to and want to go towards a certain way. Maybe they're mixed heritage and so they want to claim themselves uh, among Osceola because they're the same way. Or, you know, maybe Osceola, he's a pure Seminole, so he's pure native, and that would appeal to the native people. So I guess Osceola is whoever you want him to be. Your book doesn't just look at battles. It puts in areas about treaties and, like important people, it mentions when Osceola enters the scene. Why did you do that? I want to, because the background, it's not just battles, it's uh, everything that's happening. It, they're the, there are events that lead to the battles, of course, the treaties led to the Seminoles uh, losing their status as a community or people in Florida, the government wanting to remove them, and then becoming a non-entity after the Seminole War where the government just denies that they exist altogether. 
for about 20 years until the Smithsonian finds them. So these different events and people kind of make up the different uh, patchwork or the puzzle of who these people are. I include, you know, like there's the new Florida governor who was appointed, Governor Richard Keith Call, takes over, and he's important in the history of the war. Also, certain events, of course, you mentioned the treaties, and sometimes there's things going beyond the Seminole War in Florida. For example, the Creek War in 1836, when they tried to remove the Creeks from Georgia, Alabama, that has a big connection with what's going on in Florida because all the military officers in Florida also cross over and are in at Georgia and Alabama and the Creek War. You have a lot of the same characters. Hence, your book is called Seminole and Creek War Events as opposed to Seminole and Creek War Battles because many things in there could be tied to the wars, different events, the birth of Osceola, a new governor coming in, a treaty being signed. Right, and the Native people don't recognize the political borders that we have today. They didn't create those. Nobody asked for their input. So, you know, they went where they could to survive, whether it's the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia or the uh, uh, Suwannee River area in Florida. Uh, They went where they could, and so for them, the land is all connected, and the borders more or less just something on paper. Not only that, uh, with geography, but as far as a temporal view. The U.S. Army takes these and puts it into three separate campaigns. The Seminole Seed is one long, miserable time for them. Right. The, uh, of course, we call it the first, second, third Seminole War, but the Seminole figure, it's one war that lasts over 40 years as uh, everybody's after them, chasing them down, trying to get them to move to Oklahoma. And it has a very large cost to the Native people. That one big question that people ask me, well, who won the war? And my answer has always been nobody there. Because uh, you could say that the Seminoles won the war by staying in Florida, but it was at a heavy price that they lost 90% of their population along there that were either removed or killed. So, you know, that's that's a rough way to say that you won or you could say the army won because it removed most of the Seminoles but as uh, different from the case where it might have removed the Chickasaw or the Cherokee that it removed much more of them than it removed the Seminole but you know I guess there you could say that the Cherokee and the Creek and the Choctaw there is a remnant of them that did remain in the southeast it's just that the Seminole dug in their heels and decided that they weren't going to be removed and fought it out. One can look at this and see the Seminole, you know, they wanted to trade, but they really just wanted to be left alone. And if one looks at the period of 1810, 1811, Indian agent comes down from Georgia and says, if we have, if the Americans have a spat with the British or with the Spanish, we'd prefer you to stay neutral and not get involved. And the Seminoles are all over that. Yeah, fine, we don't want to get involved. And yet the war kind of drags them in because of American aggression trying to take Florida from the Spanish. That was called the Patriots' War. What was the Patriots' War, and how did the Seminoles come to be involved in it? The Patriot War happened in 1812 and really went to 1815 is that you had uh, I guess you could call them filibusters uh, came down from Georgia and 
certain bands of militia, they wanted to add Spanish Florida into the United States, just as up north, there's groups up in the northern United States, they wanted to add Canada to the United States. So at the same time, they're trying to add what they call Lower Canada as uh, another state or a territory. And of course, they failed in both. You know, when the war ended, everybody went back to the original borders, except for, of course, uh, people kind of ignored about the Louisiana exchange and uh, maybe some things around Canada, but pretty much back to the same. And during the Patriots War, the United States was kind of aggravating the Spanish around St. Augustine, and I guess it was some of the black Seminoles or the Seminoles attacked the supply train and killed off one of the Marine officers, or at least he was wounded and died later on. So the Georgia militia wanted to get revenge and track down the Seminoles. So the Seminoles really weren't involved. I mean, they attacked an aggressor that was in their land, in their territory. And so then these Georgians decide to bring the fight to them, and they go looking for King Payne or Painstown out on Latra Prairie. Really don't know where they're going and just kind of have happenstance to run into King Payne and start fighting it out on a fight. Uh, Daniel Noonan is the... Um, uh, Colonel Noonan, head of the militia, and they get boxed in and build themselves a barricade. They're under siege for, I don't know, a few days or a week, however long it was, until they finally break out and run back up to Georgia. Well, they almost make it there, but they stop off at Zephaniah Kingsley's plantation and have a victory party and say how they damaged the Indians. Um, well, I don't know if they damaged them so much that they may have wounded King Payne enough that he died not too long afterwards. But that was uh, really the first time that the Americans fought the fight over to the Indians and kind of started this long conflict. Those who are familiar with Dade's battle and the fact that Dade was killed and almost his entire command in 1835 see echoes of Colonel Noonan's engagement, except he somehow got them extracted without losing everybody with them, although they were in a, they were under siege, they set up breastworks and so forth. If it was a victory, it was a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, um, well, example, kind of Noonan and the Seminoles, they kind of surprised each other. Uh, the Seminoles were waiting for Major Dade and had a little more preparation for him, I think. Although the Seminoles and their black Seminole allies managed to keep a united front and push Noonan's militia off the skirmish field and back where they came from, they didn't get peace from it. What happened after that? Um, after that, there's another force from Tennessee, uh, Tennessee volunteers who came down later on, and they actually came over to Painstown and burned down the remains of Paines Village and destroyed it but i think by that time the indians had fled and just uh, gone to more safer area because they realized they were no longer safe that the americans weren't going to respect the border and uh, come on down this is one of the tragedies of it is that prior to this the Seminole were not really on on the mental map of the american although they did send down a representative to ask them to uh, stay neutral in any engagement with the spanish the Seminole were not a people that many in the United States thought about, but after this engagement with Daniel Noonan, they were. 
and this was the start of encroachment on the Seminole where they were not able to keep the territory that they had in what's now Alachua County and continued to get pushed further and further south. Right, and Alachua County will remain one of the hottest places during the Second Seminole War 20 years, 25 years later. So it will always be an area of contention among the Americans, even the Spanish land grants that the Spanish uh, allowed out there, the Arendando grant. That will stay in the courts and fought legal battles in the courts for a long time after the Seminole War ended. It may surprise our listeners to learn from your book that there were several hundred Seminole and Miccosukee Indians who sided with the British in the 1815 Battle of New Orleans. They didn't fight because they were anchored in ships offshore ready for deployment. Why would they be siding with the British? Well, the British certainly supplied them well and promised them that if they chase off the Americans, they're going to restore them to the land that the Americans gave away. And many of these Seminoles and Miccosukees had fled Georgia, Alabama. Things had gotten too hot for them. So they were given a lot of promises from the British that the British could never meet. And um, in fact, after the war ended there and Florida became a U.S. territory, that some of the chiefs went to meet with Jackson, who was now the governor of Florida in Pensacola, uh, and they wanted to find out what's going to become of them because the British had promised to pay them for their service during the Battle of New Orleans that it never did, which uh, I don't think Jackson actually met with them as probably other military officials, but it shows that they were displaced almost as much as the people that fought at the Battle of New Orleans and were left behind in the Bahamas. The British had about, I think, about 60,000 troops, and they never put all of them on land. They only put, you know, just several thousand of their soldiers on land. Uh, one reason was logistics. That was just really difficult. The big ships could not get up to the city, and so they had to portage everything through the bayous and the swamps, and it was very hard work for them. And they just never uh, put all their forces into full swing in the battle. Many Americans don't know much about the Seminole Wars. But if they know anything, they've heard of some of the big battles. Your book covers the big battles, but it also covers many of the inconclusive skirmishes. I was surprised at the number of skirmishes that went on before the war actually started in 1835 uh, for the Second Seminole War, and then after. Right, yeah, that's just something that's kind of swept under the rug is uh, there was a lot of fighting and nobody really cared a war yet, just kind of aggression on either side. The uh, Indians were burning some of the plantations, the sugar mill plantations on the coast and the plantations around Alachua County. But I guess once you had Dade's battle where the Seminoles wipe out two different companies or a detachment of soldiers, then I guess the uh, war is declared begun once that happens. Uh, before that, there's really no overt battles and uh, large-scale large, large scale battles, and that was the really first big large-scale battle. You have written in another book about a Captain Rains and his mastery of booby traps and mines. In April 1836, you report in this book that the Army booby-trapped the powder magazine at Fort Alabama. Where was Fort Alabama, and did Captain Rains have anything to do with the booby-trap? 
uh, Captain Raines wasn't involved at that point. He was at Fort Gibson in Oklahoma. And this was a different type of booby trap. Captain Raines had a floating shell that would go off when the covering, the blanket, or whatever was on it would be pulled off. Fort Alabama was on the Hillsborough River, and it was active for a couple months during the campaign by the Alabama troops, and that was abandoned. And later on, the fort was reactivated and rebuilt and named Fort Foster, which you can visit Fort Foster at Hillsborough River State Park. They have it recreated there. But when they evacuated the fort, they stuck a musket in a powder of gun, a gunpowder barrel in the magazine and attached a string between the trigger and the door handle. So when the door was open, the musket would fire off into the barrel and it blew up the whole powder magazine sky high. Just a uh, different tripe type of uh, booby trap. And I presume whatever Seminole were entering the fort then were casualties of that. Yes, the, the soldiers who came back later on said, you know, we found no, uh, I think they said they found no bodies, although there's much uh, evidence that some had been killed around the area. Was this a rarity that they actually left the fort? My understanding was uh, when the season was over, they would just burn the fort down because there were plenty of trees that could rebuild it in the next healthy season. Uh, it would differ depending on one. I w was kind of surprised sometimes at the length they would go into constructing a fort just for something that would be used for two months. I was reading about Major Dade when he was a captain in Florida eight years earlier before he was killed in 1826-27. He built a fort on the Suwannee River, which was only there for about two months, but he built it out of sturdy logs, 130 by 140 feet, and said they made log buildings. And that's a pretty substantial type fort or structure just for a small period of time. On the other hand, you got to keep soldiers engaged. Right. <laughs> Put, and it's amazing how fast sometimes they build it really quick. For example, Fort Christmas, I think they built that in three days. Uh, so it's just amazing how hard people would work back then. Now this podcast has talked a little bit about Dade's command and Dade's battle and how only two soldiers survived. One was illiterate, and so he wasn't able to write down uh, his account. And one was literate, Ransom Clark, and he did write it down. And then the third person who survived was the black interpreter. His name was Louis Pacheco, but he didn't leave the battle and rejoin the army. He left with the Seminole. In the Battle of Lake Monroe, which I hadn't heard of, but it's in your book, we see a return of Louis Pacheco fighting with Coacucci and King Philip. He'd survived the Dade battle, and some suspect that he was in league with the Seminole before this fight and before Dade's march. What does his presence here tell us? I believe that he did whatever he needed to to survive. Uh, is that at Dade's battle, he uh, crouched down on the ground and, you know, out of the way of the fire and tried to get out as quick as he could. But, of course, the Dade's men were surrounded, so he got captured. And he lived along the, among the Indians for a while, which uh, probably was not as bad. They didn't try to beat him as bad as they might of the slaves. So he probably got treated well. It was just a harsh way of living and very difficult. And he was eventually sent west with the rest of the Indians that were uh, captured or surrendered during the war. And he went out to Arkansas and Oklahoma and then 
somebody claimed him and put him in slavery again for about 10 years, and then he was emancipated after the Civil War. So uh, Louis Pacheco, he had a really rough time. But what's interesting is he actually came to Florida in his old age in the 1890s and moved into the on the property of the daughter of his former master. And she, I guess, provided him of, of welfare or pension, something to live off of and help provide for him in a real benign sort of way, which was interesting, is that he moved back to Florida where he used to live. So he's a hard one to really see, but maybe it shows just how complex the situation was and how really complex the people were at that time. And what was this Battle of Lake Monroe? The Battle of Lake Monroe is that the Army came and established what they now call Fort Mellon. It was first called Camp Monroe, and after the day that they had set up on the lake shore, they were attacked by about 300 Indians under Coacachi or Wildcat and his father, King Philip, and who put the fort under siege. It was a bit unusual, is that it was a night battle and at one point, and then finally the steamboat on the lake got an artillery piece and started firing it and then just chased Indians off. The only casualty was one Captain Charles Mellon who was killed in the battle and so they named it Fort Mellon after him. Years uh, later the city developed around the fort and they called it Mellonville but Camp Mellon or Fort Mellon it survived up I think up until the Spanish-American War and even the parade ground is the parks in the middle of the city on the shore of Lake Monroe. It was also a major depot for troops coming down into the center of the peninsula. The ships or steamboats would come down the St. Johns River and they would dock at Fort Mellon and unload the troops and unload the supplies. So it became a major uh, pathway into the state from there. Sometimes they name a lake a city, a township, a county, an area for a fallen soldier. And the name sticks. Of course, the name Dade comes to mind. Mellon, maybe not so much. Right. His name didn't stay. And, of course, they renamed it Sanford when uh, another man moved into town named Sanford. And, of course, he had the money, so he named the town after him. And then we we mentioned Daniel Noonan earlier. He got a he got a town name for Noonansville, but that didn't turn out so well. Yes, he, uh, near where he fought the battle, in fact, uh, in Alachua uh, uh, County, Noonansville was the county seat, and it's a ghost town now. There's not that much left, and they have another town nearby called Gainesville, which of course is named after General Edmund Gaines. <laughs> another high-ranking officer. So, you know, sometimes the town's forgotten, and once Noonan, Noonansville had closed down, it seems like everybody's pretty much forgot about Daniel Noonan as well. What's fascinating, what comes out of your book, is these people. And then one finds, oh, I've, I've heard that name because they've named something for those folks. And then in your book you can see what they did in order to later be recognized and remembered or memorialized in some way. Yes. You relate a letter from Andrew Jackson to a Florida newspaper in March 1837, shortly after he left office after eight years. We have discussed the contentious relationship the regular army had with volunteers or militia soldiers. In this letter, Jackson insults the Florida volunteer militia soldiers. 
He says he could take 50 women and beat the Seminoles, and that Florida women should let their men die so these women can remarry and have children who won't grow up to be cowards. Finding that letter is quite a find and an indictment of the militia on behalf of Jackson, but it's also to your great credit that you included that in this compilation of war events. Why did you include it? I saw it over over the years, and this is right after Jackson, his president term ended. He's going home to the Hermitage. His health is really poor, and he never beat the Seminoles, so there's probably a little resentment and indignation. Uh, Jackson was a hands-on person. When he wanted the tribes to negotiate, in most situations, he actually took part in the removal treaty negotiations for the Choctaw and Chickasaw. And so he was a hands-on person, but he never removed the Seminoles, and the war just kind of dragged on and on. It started during his administration, and there was still no end to sight. In fact, the war goes on during his administration. It's been going on a, a year and a half, I guess, when he ends office, and there's no end in sight. In fact, it's not at the height of the war yet. They just keep going on. So I think it really makes him look bad is that it's something that he was never able to finish, uh, never able to settle the affairs or bring everything under control, that it doesn't, he probably doesn't think it looks good for his legacy. In a war that takes place on the Florida Peninsula, we expect ground forces, of course, the Army and militia and volunteers, and yet the Navy and Marine Corps also operated in this war. What part did they play and how and why were they employed? Right. This is the first war where you had real good cooperation between the service. The Army had to get to a lot of wet areas up the rivers and creeks, and of course they only had so many boats. There actually were Army boats, but the Navy did did boats better than anyone else, is that they had the ships, they had the resources, they had the Marines who were used to fighting from ships. So the Army and Navy started to work together to go after the haunts and strongholds of the Seminoles in the Everglades around Charlotte Harbor and the different riverways, also even up further north in the peninsula like Crystal River. And at the same time, the Army was seeing as many soldiers in the field as they could bear. So the Marines and the Navy sailors started to garrison and man the forts like Fort Brooke and Fort Foster, those forts there not too far from the coast. There's an interesting story that you bring out. The Seminoles under Koakuchi attacked a company of actors and they stole their costumes. And later on, Koakuchi comes in for negotiations wearing one of the actors' costumes. This is a humorous, I don't know, almost a surreal image. What happened here and why did he do that? Right, there's a actor's a troop, a Shakespearean actors that were leaving St. Augustine and they were attacked and by Coachinus warriors and thinking that the wagons might have gunpowder or supplies. Instead, they had theatrical costumes. And so about eight months later, the Army's having a talk down in what's now Polk County, south of there, and much further south in the peninsula. And the Seminole leaders, they show up in these outfits and one of the officers say they wear them kind of grotesquely, but it's more trophies of saying, you know, I can take from you anytime I feel like it and use it to my advantage. So I think it was also a scare tactic or a negotiating tool that he was using to get what he wanted. 
Chris, you mentioned at the beginning that you were doing reenactment and that you started researching this book so you would better understand the war event. Maybe not just the big battles, but the skirmishes, the things that, that either brought about a big war event or you know were fallout from that. What are you reenacting as, and where did you actually go to do reenacting? I don't do so so much anymore. I mean, this is 25 years later, so age keeps me from running around as much in my younger years. Uh, but various different parks, uh, I'd go anywhere from Tampa to uh, Lake City area and in between state parks or museums or county parks, uh, any different historical site that wanted to hold a historical event. And at the time back then, I was doing something every weekend during the cooler months. So in February, I might have an event every weekend during that month. And of course, it got real tiring quick, but I just wanted some information when I was going somewhere to tell people is that, yeah, the Seminoles attacked this army uh, wagon train, you know, just a few miles from here. Some people may confuse the two, understandably a reenactor, and a living historian. What's the difference between them? I like to refer to myself as a historical interpreter, is that I'm trying to convey the life and times. A little, it's a little bit of acting and a little bit of historian, and it's trying to teach people in a way that they can relate to if they see somebody living outside or sleeping on the ground, uh, sort of like camping, is that they may understand a little bit on the history or what people went through at the time. Uh, reenacting, when we say that, sometimes that's kind of a dirty word that you just do one event, battle, and go home. It's, I guess, the difference between being a prime actor or a major character and being an extra in the background. And one of the other things is when there's a battle going on, then you're in character and you're doing the fighting. You're not you're not looking off to the side and winking at the um, assembled uh, tourists and other visitors and spectators. Well, sometimes you do just to get a good laugh from them. <laughs> but yeah, it's, we try to do it all in serious. And there's a safety factor too that we really have to watch out for and make sure everything's done in a manner that nobody gets hurt. But after the battle reenactment is over, or before it begins, then you have the interaction with uh, visitors. Right. And that's what I started enjoying the most. When I originally got started, I learned very quickly, although I like to blow off some smoke, I have much more fun at events where we didn't have a battle at all, that we just talk to people and talk history with them all weekend. And, you know, I just have more fun doing that. And we do that at Fort Christmas, and uh, which was a favorite place at the time that we did just purely demonstrations and talks. And it was a laid-back event. I also got to know the local people who'd come up and tell a little bit about their history and their family that might be living in the area for generations. Our listeners who don't know you will wonder, well, which soldier does Chris Kimball portray? But they would not be on the right track. Right. I... I have been portraying a, a Seminole warrior. I go by the. I used to go by the name of Okahumkey because that was the name that one of the other uh, people gave me at the time. So I said, sure, that, that's as good as any. So I've been uh, 
I guess, jumping into the culture and history, and I believe that you really have to understand that and to give an accurate portrayal that we're portraying somebody that used to be alive and that their descendants are around today, that we have to do an honorable way of portraying them through the history and culture. And so I've done my best to try to understand as much as I can. Chris, you've written these books. You've been a reenactor, a living history interpreter. You also have a YouTube channel related to the Seminole Wars. What is this channel and what do you seek to do with it? Oh, okay. Well, I just have it under, right now, under my name, Chris Kimball. I did, ha- did have it under Seminole War, but I more or less want to get my name out there because of my books that I've written. But I've always just wanted to get this information out there and to educate people. So a lot of what I do is, you know, I don't really charge people for talking history is that I just want to get the history out here. And so I just started putting a series of videos out of all the books I have on the Seminole War if they're interested in reading something more. In the past, I go to a site and do a short video. I'm no big fancy YouTube personality, and I I just take a straight shot and slap it on YouTube. So there's no crazy sound or graphics or anything like that. It's, you know, just something that appeals to me. We talked offline, though, about a number of videos on YouTube that purport to be about the Seminole Wars that are really, really poor. Why do you say that? And when we say that these videos are poor, what do we mean by that? probably think that people are just perpetuating falsehoods and myths because they don't know any better. Maybe they read a source that was incorrect and uh, they're perpetuating wrong information. Then there's some that say things that are wrong altogether, uh, that something that I don't like and I really don't want to get into that much, so I want to portray the accurate history or the correct history of uh, what happens, what we have documented. And, of course, there's more than one side to everything, and people are going to differ from what I say, but I try to document everything that we do and, you know, show them to make sure that it's a clear view of uh, history, even though sometimes it's not all perfect. You also have a Facebook page and you have an online bookstore. Tell us about those. This book site, it's called Bookshop and it promotes the independent booksellers. So um, it's as if you brought, bought my book in one of the small independent bookstores. So what I have, it's uh, bookshop.org slash shop slash Seminole War, one word. So bookshop.org slash shop slash Seminole War, and that's the webpage where I have my books for sale. And then you have a Facebook page. Yes, I I have a Facebook page. It's Florida Seminole Wars, and actually I started one and kind of let it slide because I wasn't really doing anything with it, and so then I got some help, and we restarted again, so I actually have two Seminole War webpages. I just don't do anything with the first one. So the second one's called Florida Seminole Wars, and I put on there, in fact, a lot of the things in my event book I have uh, today in Seminole War history or today in the Army Navy Chronicle and kind of a little abbreviated entry in the book itself. I go into a little more detail. And people can engage with you on this site. Yes. Uh, you know, we just kind of post things dealing with Seminole history or more Florida history or just something that might interest us. Very good. Thanks. Getting back to this book. What can one learn by reading this book of battle events cover to cover? 
Seminole War encompassed the whole state of Florida. There's not anywhere in the state that wasn't affected. So you may be walking on area of contested ground that once this was fought over and that something terrible happened there. And to keep that in mind, that this is something that really involved the whole country at one brief time during the 1830s and 40s that we may have much forgotten it today, but it was land that had a high price that was purchased in blood and warfare. One can make light and say the Manhattan Indians sold their island to the Dutch for $24 of trinkets, and if they had just kept it, they'd have New York City today. And the Seminole were chased out from the area of Kissimmee, the Seminole were the area of Kissimmee, and of course there's Disney there. It's like, oh, they must think if we just could have kept that land, we could have sold the Disney and been rich. What's the takeaway from this? Well, the Seminoles are still here, and James Billy once said that even if they have to buy it back one acre at a time, they're going to maybe eventually do that, which uh, I'm not against that. Interesting. And with, with the gaming that they have, they may just be able to do that and then uh, reclaim reclaim land that was theirs that they shouldn't have to rebuy, but uh, they could, and then it's theirs again. Chris Kimball, once again, thanks for being with us for the Seminole Wars podcast. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.